You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Uh, I am Murhoff. Uh, my name is Kathy. And we're here with the Design Talk podcast as part of the tech consulting course for uh, the Masters in Business Analytics. We are very pleased to welcome David Horn, Senior Manager in AI and Data Consulting at Deloitte. Yes, to start, David, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourself and uh, your journey starting as an analyst at Deloitte? Yeah, so my background, uh, I did the, the same course you guys, Business Analytics uh, in UCD, uh, coming up on 10 years now ago. So uh, before that, I did a, a course called MSIS, which is Management Science and Information System Studies in Trinity. And then I did the, the master's, the one-year master's here. Um, so off the back of that, I joined Deloitte, uh, went straight into consulting and joined there as an analyst and I am still there now 10 years later. Um, so yeah, like within that time, I've obviously kind of moved through the ranks and worked on various different projects, um, mainly out in the public sector. Um, so yeah, primarily kind of working with public sector clients, um, generally kind of within kind of tech implementation and then kind of pivoting I suppose more into analytics um, and kind of a little bit of machine learning um, quite a bit of kind of like data management and big data platforms and um, different type of uh, analytics platforms as well so things like SaaS and or uh, Hadoop that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot of kind of like tech implementation as well as I suppose a bit of strategy work as well. Yeah, that's kind of my general background anyway. Uh, I mean, we're going to follow up with asking you a little bit of, about Deloitte's consulting and what sort of things that they do and what kind of services that they provide to different clientele. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they provide a, a whole range, I suppose, of consulting services Um like primarily, I suppose, like it, it depends on what way you look at it as well. Like obviously Deloitte is a, a global brand with over 200,000 employees um, and each different, I suppose, area probably has different niches and different kind of um, areas of specialization. We've traditionally been a lot of like kind of heavy on kind of tech Im- implementation, um, but we've really grown a lot of capabilities as well over the last few, like the last decade. So when I joined uh, Deloitte 10 years ago now, we had about 100, I'd say, in tech, in, I think of all of consulting. And now we're up over about eight, probably 900, close to 1,000 people. So, so this is Deloitte Ireland. Yeah, Deloitte Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So primarily, like I've done a, a lot of my work with Deloitte Ireland, but we do work across uh, what we call the NSC, which is Europe. So we've, we work a lot closer now as well. Um, just to be able to try and I suppose um, serve our clients needs better so like a lot of our clients are you know global multinationals so by us being able to provide services across you know a range of different um, areas and, and jurisdictions you know it makes our value proposition a lot better you know maybe compared to some of the other smaller um, consulting firms that wouldn't have a presence uh, as big globally within within um, as ourselves um, so yeah I suppose what I'm in is is the the AI and data team so a lot of focus on kind of analytics artificial intelligence data data management machine learning and um, that's kind of our area but we also have other areas around kind of like just general systems engineering and tech implementation um, which kind of falls in under like general kind of web development, uh, you know, middleware, that type of stuff. We also have a separate cloud team as well. 
um, it's for cloud engineering. Um, and then there's a whole host of other kind of like, uh, like life sciences, private sector stuff, healthcare stuff. Um, so there's lots of different, I suppose, areas. So what um, do you think makes public sector consulting special? I think it is an interesting area to work in because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of value I think you yourself can actually take out of it. Um, I actually really enjoy working with some of the public sector clients because some of the real world benefits and impacts um, that you actually see, you know, it's quite fulfilling. Um, nothing wrong with going to work for, you know, a big global multinational company or a bank but sometimes it can feel a little bit soulless if if you're going in and working directly with, you know, COVID support schemes, uh, trying to help, you know, the Ukrainian refugee crisis where people are coming in and you're trying to allocate resources you're looking at. Like we're, we're at the moment, you know, we're looking at the, the HSE and looking at, okay, where are people coming into, how do we provide services? And um, obviously like within kind of revenue, like there was a whole host of work over the last couple of years around, COVID support schemes. Um, there's stuff going on around like energy support schemes now at the moment. Um, and even just kind of a lot of like the, those, those touch points maybe that people have, like say with passport office or with, you know, how do I go into my account and, and claim back tax or, you know, all, all these kind of like online services. Um, if you're working, I suppose, for some of those things it can be quite fulfilling and it's quite interesting work as well uh, and even from a data perspective like you're you're dealing obviously with quite sensitive information generally within the public sector but some of it's really interesting data really interesting analysis that you can do um, so there's lots of really cool interesting stuff there even from a from a like a justice and immigration perspective like how do we streamline that how do we you know how do we see fraud within the revenue system uh, how do we help the guards best allocate resources you know how do we allow them to to access pulse systems and and all that kind of stuff um so there's there's real interesting things that have a, a real tangible kind of impact i suppose to um to the citizen um so i'm assuming the scale of these projects uh, you're dealing with multi-vendor teams yeah. uh, how would these multi-vendor teams operate within public within the public sector and within public sector projects yeah, great question. Um, really interesting. Like, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of what public sector do is they go out for tender or frameworks. Um, so it depends on what type of project it is. Sometimes they'll say, okay, we need a, a specific like project. We need to deliver this web service that does X, Y, and Z. They'll go out and do that. Sometimes they'll actually go out and have like a framework plan where you provide resources for kind of two to four years to help them implement that. Uh, what was kind of surprising to me as I started moving around the different public sectors was how different some of them are and how they how different they operate. So some of my experience in, in certain clients is very much we work together in a multi-vendor team. So, you know, uh, I might be one team, one vendor, you might be another, you might be the client. We all work together within, I suppose, like the analytics area uh, and the same, say, with if we're talking about test or middleware or enterprise architecture, it's all kind of, you know, multi-vendor as opposed to I know other like clients um, work completely differently where it's very much, okay, this team looks after like like the analytics piece or this looks after this project uh, or that project. Um, 
So there's very different ways of doing it. Um, sometimes like there's benefits and, and downsides to both. You know, sometimes if you have complete ownership of a project, that can be beneficial because you know it's a lot easier for you to kind of if if we're all on the same team and I tap you on the shoulder, we're all together. There can obviously if in another place where we're working you know, side by side, there can be obviously elements of competition as well. And it depends on all the different personality types and how people get on and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, um, it's interesting how different, um, yeah, some of the, the different public sector, um, clients are, um, it's, yeah, they do, they do work differently and they have different cultures and different ways of working. Uh, and even like, even small things like expectations, like on, um, like being in the office and stuff like so I, in the, the client i am at the moment uh we're in one day a week um you know i know some like uh, we're in the office one day a week and then four days at home uh, i know other people that are already back kind of three four days a week and they're pushing for five um so it kind of depends a little bit on the, the organization and um i suppose the tasks you're doing and how well i suppose they feel that they're they're able to operate um. So it seems like consulting is a very versatile profession in a way that you will work in a lot of teamwork. You need a lot of technical skills and work um, as a multiple roles. So what do you think are the key qualities that consultants should have? Um, there's probably lots. Like, I mean, yeah, like, I think being, uh, there's an element of, I think when you start your career, it's very much, you're a generalist kind of just try and absorb as much information as you can and uh, absorb different, you know, uh, ways of working, learning different tech, different skills. I think as you kind of have two or three years under your belt, that's when you want to start becoming that kind of subject matter expert in a particular area. Um, and that probably helps kind of shape and define and your value within the, the organization. Um, what was the last part of that question again? What are the qualities, essentially, that should um, a consultant should Oh, yeah, the qualities, yeah, yeah. So I think there is an element, I think, of, like, customer service to a certain degree, like being able to deal with the client, um, being able to, you know, build rapport. Like, ultimately, you're, you're selling yourself, you're selling, you're selling yourself, and you're selling your team around you. So they, people want to work with, you know, people that are nice, that are... That, are, that you're able to get on with, uh, that you're able to have a bit of fun with, but also that they're able to get the job done. You know, like it is a people business. Um, so I think those are probably important qualities. Um, I think like flexibility, you know, being able to adapt to different people's styles, different personalities, you know, knowing how to navigate that. Um, being able to deal as well, I think, with kind of multiple stakeholders. Like, so... Uh, I think one of the challenges within consulting sometimes can be the number of stakeholders up and down. Um, I think a lot of people find um, the the upward kind of, like I would say, if, if someone said, who's my boss? I'd probably have three bosses. Like I have my client boss. Uh, I have my, this. I'm working currently on an engagement that is led by uh, a partner in the systems integration layer. But then my actual partner and my actual service line is on the analytics uh, or the AI and data team. So I actually have kind of two partners there as well that I need to, you know, 
and you need to manage those relationships and those expectations as well as your client one. So being able to kind of navigate all that kind of stuff is can be a challenge. It's 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 definitely doable. Don't let me don't uh, don't let me put you off that. Um, but um, it's something that you just need to be aware of. And, and each organization is different. Like there's, there's pros and cons. Like I think when you work in somewhere like Deloitte, it's a partnership. So ultimately, like if you need sign off or if you need kind of something from your boss, you can go direct to your partner and say, listen, I need this time off or I need this or I need that, you know, and you can work with them as opposed to sometimes if you go to a multinational kind of or a corporation that is shareholder based, you end up having to go up several different layers of management and through HR and and all that kind of stuff. So um, I fi- I've found that over my career that it's been quite quite interesting to be able to work directly kind of with that partner that has effectively autonomy to say make the decisions yes and no and i think sometimes that can be can be beneficial so these were some of the challenges you'd face in the corporation itself or within consulting business itself but what about some of the challenges you might face with client organizations um challenges with client organizations i think for that like ultimately i suppose it's it, it's always challenging. Like you're you're in there to help them solve problems, and how easy it is to solve them is ultimately <laughs> the, the the challenge. Um, I think there's a whole like there's a, yeah there's a number of different areas there. It's setting expectations, I suppose. Like having I suppose clear expectations with the client and what they expect out of you and and your and your team, uh, and being able to I suppose. Um, uh, send that message up and down throughout the team. Um, I think that's also a challenge as you grow in your career. There's only a certain, there's only so much um, work that you can take on before you eventually have to start, you know, giving work out to other people. And ultimately, there almost comes a time and a place where my success and my um, my career progression almost doesn't matter like it's primarily not on me but it's around my team if i can make my team successful that will make me successful um and there is a switch i think when you know you've gone when you go from that kind of analyst to consultant once you start managing people that does your team's performance becomes much more important so i think when you're dealing with those clients ultimately you're trying to make sure that the team is motivated that they're happy that they're also that they're working on work that they want to work on as well um that and that you're also like you're it depends i suppose on the relationship and the nature of the engagement that you're working with with your client but because we focus i suppose quite a lot on implementation you need to make sure that you don't kind of just keep your head down and focus on exactly okay this is the task that we need to do and just get them done you also need to be focusing on what the future looks like and how you can, you know, influence, I suppose, some of that future strategic vision. And um, because you're probably at your most vulnerable, whether you're really busy trying to get stuff out uh, and then someone else comes along and says, okay, well, this like chat GPT is the next big thing. It's going to revolutionize what you're doing in five years. So I think being able to, to weigh up those, weigh up that as well, making sure that you're delivering from an implementation perspective, but also giving that advice from a strategic element to your client to say, listen, 
this is where this is what you want to be thinking about in the next few years um, and finding the right I know you were talking about personality types earlier so ultimately you want to find some of these decision makers within the organization or within the client that are those kind of blue sky pioneer type of thinkers if you like or, or generally not to say that someone that's very detail focused and you know likes to listen it's very guardian protective won't be thinking about that but generally their priority will be let's just get this over the line let's get the system working um but you need to also have that vision as well of like what is the future look like the whole picture the whole project exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and 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 what comes after this project what's next for them what's next for the organization what's uh, what are the next ways of working how do we how do we improve how do we iterate upon that um and so i guess we will start with like the client's vision and uh can you talk more about how do you often approach designing and redesigning the client systems i think it's it depends obviously on again what kind of client you're coming in sometimes they will just say this is what we need implemented and just go off and do it but ultimately i think where the value comes in is that you come in at the start of a project and try and influence and figure out the direction figure out what the pain points are and workshop them with the um with the client ultimate like generally like yeah consultants will have expertise in different areas and we can always pull in different expertise across the organization but fundamentally generally the client will have probably the best ideas like they know their business the best um so what you really want to do is you want to be able to enable them to kind of come to the to the right conclude or come to the right kind of vision so you can i think the way that you want to do is try and workshop that at the start ultimately find what the vision is for that for the for the company where do they want to go how are we going to design this system how are we going to get there and try and enable that with some of pepperings of your expertise and then you kind of have a bit of a plan about how you can go about it obviously like the consultants can do the kind of they can look at different um market research and they can tell you what other people are doing and um, but ultimately i think the change you it wants to be generally driven as well by the that organization itself because if you come in it needs to be a journey together because if you come in and say okay well i think you just need to do this completely different way if people aren't bought in it's very hard to get that change to stick then as well now sometimes you will have to go in and say jesus this is completely wrong way but ultimately you want to bring them on a journey together uh, rather than it just being like told like this is what you should do uh, and ultimately like they like they will have good people generally in their their organization and their business that can try and shape that it's just you trying to enable that conversation we could probably pivot a little bit to talking about the standards that are applied to these systems that are designed with clients. There are standard ways of doing things and there's there's specific design guides that you can follow and specific like literature and methodology um and a lot of different consultancies will have different ways of kind of stepping through processes with it. Um like for me I think more coming at it from the implementation side it is important as well to try and i suppose if you can standardize an approach as well in terms of um the actual implementation of something so 
I've seen, this probably goes back again to ways of working within public sector. Certain places will be very like regimented in terms of their standard approach to architecture design in terms of we're a Java house or we're a Python house or, you know, so we do, we design our web applications are all Spring Java or Angular and, you know, or maybe our analytics like stack is SAS or it's Hadoop or it's OR. Um, and that then propagates throughout the entire organization. And I think that is generally very positive because it allows different teams to work together. You're able to utilize the same expertise. Uh, other organizations can be a bit more, I just need this system developed and I don't really care what, like as long as it fulfills the functional requirements, it doesn't matter if you go off and build it in Python or Java or C or C sharp, you know, or whatever the, the tech is, as long as it's done. But then five or 10 years later, you're left with all of these le like legacy systems that you're trying to operate. So you actually need C sharp developers, you need Java developers and you need Python developers. Um, and then there's a whole mismatch of these different standard techs within your organization. So I think if you can have a clear vision from a tech perspective, and that this is me probably just focusing in on the tech because uh, I'm a tech person generally. So it can be dangerous just to go down the route of, you know, give me a give me a, a system and I don't really care how it fits into the overall architecture of the, the, the organization. And then it becomes very difficult sometimes. All organizations struggle with this in terms of like old legacy um, tech um, like there's still loads of like mainframes and banks and COBOL jobs and like loads of different kind of tech that people are really struggling to get away from, um, which is good for some people though, because it means that there's always going to be jobs in, in those areas. Now they might not be the most exotic jobs in the world, but like there's, there's decent money to be made for developers that are kind of interested in that, that area. So do you think technical implementation also like let's say the technical standards are they driven by policy uh yeah like ultimately i suppose generally like things are come don't come from a tech perspective so generally you'll have a policy around you know or a vision a general like the ceo will have a vision or the upper management will have a vision of where they want the company to go and ultimately there will be a bunch of policy decisions as well that you'll have to take into consideration around gdpr um maybe around what you're even allowed what type of software that you're allowed to use um different levels of encryption from a security perspective so some of that will be set and then ultimately it's generally up to the it department to decide on how best to implement that um, and so that's where you kind of so you try and see okay where's the vision what are the policy decisions that we have to make and then you make the tech decision based on that um like there's a lot of like kind of i suppose within the public sector they generally don't want to be seen to be i suppose the first movers but like the whole kind of cloud initiative is pro is coming and it's just a case of how quick and when so ultimately you know there is still or up until probably last two years ago there was definitely a reluctance to store any type or generally to store citizen data out in the public cloud. Now they've released deeper, um, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform have released a, a cloud kind of advisory note 
that government departments are going to take uh, into account. And it's basically saying cloud is going to come and it's up to each department to figure out, you know, how quickly and when. Um, so it will come. And, and some of that has even been driven by like, ultimately, you know, even just say something for as basic as Microsoft Word, um, you know, an office, like a lot of, you know, the public sector is is driven through Microsoft products like that. It's unclear, you know, in five or 10 years, whether you'll be able to even use that without it being in the cloud, you know? So a lot of products that people are using will only have cloud versions and might only be accessible via Azure or Amazon or GCP. Um, or, you know, particular services that you'll be interested in, like in terms of the kind of chat GPT type of things that will be coming down the line, they might only be available in the cloud. So ultimately it's going to push things into the cloud. Um, and so how, we, how each organization navigates that is, you know, it's, it's up for kind of debate. Um, so do you think... Uh European um, regulation drive system design, and do you think um, there will be any new regulation worth noticing? So yeah, yeah. So I have a good bit, I suppose, of experience in the kind of tax domain, um, and there's a there's a huge amount of work that's been going on in the last kind of five or six years, uh, maybe more, um, with exchange of information between different countries. So there's a whole host of um, of initiatives around DAC, which is kind of automated data sharing. And each DAC looks at different aspects in terms of um, whether it's like a corporation or whether it's a personal, per uh, there's stuff around kind of cryptocurrencies coming up now, I think in DAC 8, um, any of the Americans, or you might have even, you might see like, um, people have heard of FATCA before. So FATCA is a, an American initiative that they basically said, if you want to do business with American banks, you need to have a bunch of no KYC and data information exchange between America and the European banks. So that's why some of our Americans in the audience might find it hard sometimes to open maybe a bank account here because there's a whole host of extra procedures <laughs> that they need to go through. Um, maybe it was fine, but I know it, it can be challenging sometimes. Um, so there's a lot of different um, uh, data sharing agreements and even within the um even currently obviously the irish corporation tax is a very topical thing and you know there's talk of that and being moved to 15 percent now and part of i suppose some of the this these reporting standards with oecd countries is to better understand who's paying tax and where and to come up with um more unified kind of global um tax standards that can be applied across the different EU and OECD countries. Uh, before we jump to the crowd, I just have, I want to circle back to something very quickly. So you were talking about the public sector, right? And we generally understand it as being slightly behind the times. It's a little harsh, but that's the reality in most countries. Do you think something which, like ChatGPT, for example, is causing any noticeable changes in policy making right now? Because we can see that it's clearly making an impact on the private sector, but on the public sector, is there anything noticeable? Um, there's definitely, there's a lot of stuff definitely happening within the public sector. Um, maybe we're still a bit early on ChatGPT. I think we're still trying to get our heads around its capability and, and what it's used for, but 
be guaranteed there's a lot of conversations going on in the public sector with that. Um, some of the really nice use cases I've seen from an analytics perspective in the public sector is is around kind of customer contact um, optimization. So pre- like some of the some of the work that we've been doing is so previously if you had have come in with a customer contact, uh, like so you want to query something, um, someone would physically look at that uh, query and say, okay, that goes to one of 30 or 40 teams. So what we've been able to do is go in, build a, a, a model to automatically classify that and automate that whole process so that instead of having, you know, four, five or six people just t- looking at these queries as they come in and assigning them, that's all automated out in the cloud using AI services uh, out in the public sector. So there's a lot of stuff happening in this in that space. Um, and those are some of the areas I think that we want to focus on as well, kind of, um, and then taking taking that kind of idea a step further. So being able to actually automatically respond to those type of queries. So just say, for example, it's a car rental company. It gets assigned to someone. Instead of having to, like say, say, the, say the query is like, how much is it to add a car seat? you know, a child car seat, it's, you know, it's 20 quid a day or whatever. If you can have AI that basically looks at that query, okay, I know what that customer is, the the email address, I know what the latest booking they have, it's a car seat. If you could automatically write that email and then just have someone at the end, just press send, like just do a double check, make sure it looks okay, press send, brilliant. You know, like the amount of saving that you could get from that is, is huge. Now, and, that, and that's been going on, like that's the kind of stuff that we've been looking on for the last couple of years. But I think with the advent of ChatGPT and other services like that, we're going to see a whole host of um, more, I suppose, um, things that that will be applicable in that kind of sense. So I think that's that's where we want to focus a lot of our kind of like efforts around AI and analytics. Um, I think one of the challenges I've found over the years with some implementation of analytics is that the tech guys and the data analysis get really excited with like, here's a really good list and we know it's going to have really good yield in terms of like, we know there's lots of fraud in here and we just need to get the, go get the caseworkers to work it. But actually fundamentally trying to get the caseworker to to look at that and understand where the fraud is, is very challenging because sometimes, you know, you're dealing with people that have been in an organization for years and are a little bit, I know the customer base better than some Excel list that you're sending me or whatever the late, like even if you wrap it up in a lovely web service and say, these are our top 10 risky cases. If you can't convince someone to, or to either work them or understand where the risk is in that, then fundamentally, it's not going to be a successful project. But if you can use it to optimize internal processes and things like that, that's where you can make get real success and re- drive real value from, I suppose, from analytics and AI. So any question? Or is it throwing it out to the crowd? How's it going? Um, I was curious, how do you handle like uh, a project that like almost seems like doomed for failure? Um, I'm sure a lot of times like you'll have to deal with maybe stubborn people, whether internal or clients. And it feels like whenever you go forward a step, you go back two steps. And, you know, I feel like maybe at a certain point you have to accept reality that something's going to fail. How do you cope with that? How do you reason with it? How do you move forward and acknowledge and learn from it? Yeah. Um, luckily, I haven't had too many <laughs> massive failures, but I think it's trying to understand 
trying to get ahead of the trying to understand where the issues are occurring so sometimes it is very much like we we just need direction from the top down because the biz, like the maybe the business owners just don't see it this way and we see it some way and ultimately you'll need you'll need that top down to come this way other times it's like it's about bringing people on a journey together it's it's not just dictating this is the new system and this is how it's going to be um like you need to bring those people along and they need to understand why where the decisions are made you need to understand their the way they work um ultimately like yeah if something's kind of doomed for failure like a little harsh sorry but yeah yeah yeah. i mean then you're probably into slightly you know murkier waters but i do think it's kind of it's open and honest kind of communication. It's shown some flexibility as well. Um, and what we like that I like to do as well as try, like if you're in a client for quite a long time, you can build up that rapport and that trust as opposed to sometimes if it's very transactional and it's like, well, you need to fill out a change order for every single thing. There just isn't that kind of um, level of trust and that level of respect that you get sometimes. So. Ultimately, you want to try and get to that place where you've got that kind of good, personable relationship with the client, with the business owners, with your different stakeholders. Um, and yeah, you want to try and avoid it as much as this whole just go through the service, raise a request and we'll look at it in two months. And All right. Thank you very much, David. Do you think that um, a person's personality affects would affect the consultant on the job? So say like what we were discussing earlier, um, being an introvert or an extrovert, would you think that an extrovert, right, based on your experience, would you think an extrovert um, would perform better as a consultant, right, just based on experience, better than an introvert? No, I, I think it's, it's, there's a time and a place for every type of person and ultimately you'll probably find uh, like certain type of areas will maybe lean in towards a certain personality type. So you might generally find, and this is a broad generalization, but you might find the tech implementers or like the audit people might tend to be slightly more introverted. The people that are maybe in that, that strategy piece are maybe more extroverted, but ultimately it's, it's all a spectrum and it's just about, I think where your natural fit is. Um, I think the most important thing is to really understand that not everyone thinks the same way as you. And once you start being able to identify your different stakeholders and their different general types of personality traits, like it doesn't have to be the whole INTJ, I I know this person's the, it's just that general kind of, are they the detailed oriented person? So if they are, I need to have all my facts and figures in there before I go in. If they're the blue sky thinker, there's no point in going in with a list being like, okay, I've done the analysis and here's my 50 point plan. They're just going to be like, what are you talking about? Like this is way too much. Uh, And and vice versa. Again, there's probably the people that are really focused on the team and the personality element versus not that the, the, the driver will not care about the team, but ultimately they'll want to make decisions. They'll, they want to move fast. They want to take a direction. Um, and if people are a little bit put out by that, okay, okay, it's not the end of the world. 
Um, there's whole, there's uh, all that's uh, like a spectrum, and you just need to flex your style to suit, I suppose, each of that. And depending on the type of jobs, like you're going to have people that will just naturally be able to adapt better or easier. Um, but certainly, I wouldn't say it, it's not going to. I wouldn't think it's going to stop anyone. Um, you know, being a certain personality type is not going to stop you. It's just all about being able to to flex and um figure out other people's way styles of working and, and, and how you approach them some people are going to want to just chat about the kids for 30 minutes before you get to the like <laughs> before you get to the actual like detail piece and then other people are just like straight in with the detail you know uh it's always i always find it really interesting i just if i'm in a coaching conversation with a, a team member you know a lot of time i'll just start off with like how are you getting on and it's funny the different responses you get. Like some of them people would be straight into, oh, I was out in the weekend there, we had a, had a wedding, blah, blah, blah. Other people are just straight into, oh, well, actually there was trying to write this piece of code and like, well, have you any thoughts on this? Or, you know, you, so you, people just have different personality types and you just have to be able to, to flex to that. Uh, which one are you then? Which one am I? Yeah. Uh, I'm probably more of an introvert. Like I get, like, I'd say when I get home now tonight, I'll be like, oh, geez, I'm wrecked. I'm tired, like. But I wouldn't have, any, I, I, enjoy, I really, I enjoy talking to, to people and, and like having discussions and seeing what other people are doing. And cause you know, you guys are like in my position as well. So it's really interesting to see as well, like, okay, well, what are you guys looking at? What are you guys focusing on? How have things changed in 10 years? Doesn't, it doesn't feel like I've been working 10 years, but yeah, time goes quick, like, and hairlines recede pretty quickly as well, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank God it's a podcast. <laughs> We uh we have a question online. Um, Hi David, how are you? Good, good. Yeah. Um. So um, the question that I asked was um, with the way like artificial intelligence is progressing, um, what do you think is um the impact going to be on your work or the nature of the work you do? Yeah, like it's super interesting. Um, I think it's generally going to be a positive thing. Um, we're still yeah really trying to figure out. I suppose all the use cases around it um but ultimately i think it'll be a tool that will support us in our kind of decision making in how we approach problems and how we solve problems um i think there there will be challenges and you know i think we've been in this situation before where we've you know, a hundred years ago, we've said, you know, the tech, you know, the industrial revolution, it's going to take everyone out of jobs. It's going to, you know, everything's going to be replaced. Um, I do think that there are certain areas and different, different areas, which are going to be affected more than others. But ultimately I do think it's going to just be a tool that will allow us to, to do our jobs. We're still going to need people to be able to, I suppose, make decisions and you know build these systems um i don't think ai is gonna you're just gonna type into you know a whole fda a functional requirements doc into an ai and it's going to give you out the exact system you need we might use it along in parts to to help us build that 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 um that solution but ultimately yeah it's kind of it's hard to know exactly where it's going but like the, already the use cases i've like i've seen lots of use cases like around kind of you know creating code converting code from one language to another um 
interesting stuff like around kind of where uh, I guess there was a, I think it was like a water standards document and then a report and you were able to just say, okay, well, according to the, the standards and this report that's written, you know, where are the issues and where are the, you know, where are we not up to spec? And it's able to like seemingly do that very quickly. So like what would have taken someone, you know, uh, maybe days to, to read through the report, read through the standards and find out where there's discrepancies, like I think we'll be able to use AI to, to eliminate some of that manual work but ultimately the remedial work is probably going to have to be you know pushed by a, a real person and you know those decisions and those kind of actions are going to be um pushed by a real person so just to add to that so those were some of the positives we would speak about ai right but there's a lot of negative applications right now that are making the rounds and a lot of criticism of it right so things like uh, being able to mimic the voices of people to almost a perfect uh, to perfection um, perhaps deep fakes and the uh, for those who don't know those would be videos or pictures that are essentially ai generated of people and it's just using their faces and their details and maybe their voices and it's just mimicking them one to one what kind of regula regulations are required to to deal with something like that yeah, I, it's a great question. Um, I think they will have to come up with some sort of standards or some sort of framework, but ultimately it's going to be very hard to police that. I do think there will be ways to identify, like there's already, like, they've started developing ways to identify deep fakes, but ultimately with the way that social media is now, all it takes is for that kind of content to be out there and then it becomes fact. You know, it becomes, well, that's, that's what it is like part of the conversation yeah yeah like or was it the, even just last week it was macron took off his watch and you know it was an eighty thousand dollar watch but actually it was just two thousand you know but ultimately everyone was just like oh he's got an eighty thousand dollar watch you know that's and that's what the narrative was i think it's going to be very difficult to police yes like these kind of deep fakes and and the and imaging and video things because even if we were able to identify it and after the fact the damage might already be done uh i don't really know how you police it it's like it, it maybe it harps back and maybe alan will remember like a lot of conversations around encryption in the and the, even lately like in the 70s and 80s there was a whole kind of conversation happening around should encryption even be legal but ultimately like it's just maths so it's going to be very hard to police you know that type that type of technology and um, they will be able to put in probably rules and regulations but th there's definite downsides as well in terms of like if people are probably firing in you know like uh, code from their own companies you know and ultimately now like that's going to potentially be used by these companies um so you're you're giving away potentially sensitive data and sensitive information about organizations so it's all that's also a downside um even stuff like i've seen people like hooking up chat gpt to like tinder and stuff now and people are just able to respond like it's able to scan the picture scan the bio and then come up with like you know interesting like free like uh i suppose chat up lines or whatever to to people on tinder so you, people are just chatting away to someone what they think is a real person is actually a bot like like they, all this stuff is happening i ultimately it shouldn't happen but how you're going to be able to police it i don't know yet i don't have that answer but if you if any of you guys do i'd love to hear it 
Hi, I'm Alan, and uh, I have a question about uh, when a client has a uh, problem, but you 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 can't solve it. Maybe a technical problem, or uh, this problem this problem is out of your service range, but another company can deal with it, and uh, the client know it. How do you respond? Uh, how do you reply to the client and? Uh, Uh, how to deal with this situation? Um, yeah, like I mean, there's two parts to that. Um, one is probably the um, if if I don't know, I'm I'm very happy to say, listen, I'm actually not sure. I don't know about that, but I know someone, and I can get back to you next week. So don't be afraid. You don't need to know everything. It's perfectly acceptable to say to the client, I don't know, but I can get back to you. And in that time, I'll go, I'll ring someone. Like, luckily, Deloitte's a pretty big company, so we have a fair amount of expertise. Ultimately, you should be able to try and find someone that might have that right answer. Um, and so that's okay. Like, you can say, I'm not sure, but let me get back to you. I, I have someone that might. If, if there's something that you can't do, and it's actually something that can't be done, I think making sure that the client is aware of why maybe some implementation is just not possible. So rather than just going up and saying it can't be done, cross it off the list, making sure that they understand where you're coming from and understanding the reasoning behind that, then people are much more receptive to, okay, well, it can't be done because of X, Y, and Z reason. Because um, ultimately, if you just say, oh, it can't be done, they'll probably go to someone else as well. Or they might go to someone else. Um, they might say yes, they might say no, but by allowing them to understand the technical reasons as to why that's not possible in this, in, in the context of that client. Um, I think that's kind of important. Thank you. Uh, I guess on that note, David, thank you very much for being with us here. Uh, we're wrapping up for today. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. It was great to chat to you. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 